if the supply had been cut, but the Fed and the other central banks and the monetary authorities had not done a good job of convincing everybody that things were okay and that things were getting better, then prices of commodities still could have fallen even though supply was falling because in that case, maybe demand was falling more than supply was, right? But because they convinced everybody that they were gonna print enough money to, to make up for the lack of demand, demand kind of stayed the same or went up a little bit and supply crashed. All right, Brent Johnson, welcome to On The Margin. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining me. Thanks for having me, looking forward to it. Yeah, I was actually looking forward. I thought we were gonna be a uh, white headphone gang here. Uh, we're, we're sans <laughs> the, uh, the classic yeah, Brent Johnson you know. white headphones. You know, I still have them here. I, I occasionally use them, but uh, I, I decided for interviews that it looked a little silly for me to be looking like I was, I was at a rave. Oh, all right. Well, you think white headphones are silly? Great. As I as I a newly initiated member into the white headphones. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's all good. I, I, lo I love I, I love the white headphones. I love the white headphones. Awesome. Well, you're uh, we're talking to you here from your new place in uh, none other than Puerto Rico. Congratulations on the move. That's exciting. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, you know, it kind of, I've been thinking about it for a number of years, but, uh, you know, just a couple of months ago, got serious about it. And once we made the decision, uh, it all happened pretty quickly. So I got here about a week ago and so far so good. Yeah. Well, I live in New York, so uh, your decision is looking pretty good to me uh, right about now for more reasons than one, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there, there were there were a number of reasons to kind of make the move from San Francisco. It's uh, I love it. I love San Francisco. I love California is amazing. But, you know, the trend isn't necessarily great. And, uh, you know, I've been here in a week. I've met more people in a week who have kind of the same outlook uh, as I do and think about things the same way I do than I did in you know 20 years in San Francisco. So it's uh, so far so yeah. good. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that from a lot of people, too. I honestly I haven't spent much time slash any really in San Francisco, but it seems like it's going through, let's call it a bit of a rough patch uh, right now. So yeah. I think you're on the right side of that trend for sure. Um, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of trends, let's, uh, let's get into it. What, what I really yeah. would love to kind of yeah. kick this conversation off with um, is this topic of inflation. Um, and I, I still think, you know, we've been talking about this for four or five months. I still think the question of inflation versus deflation is the most important question that anyone should be asking themselves in, in finance today. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to this last uh, CPI print, right, which was pretty high. Uh, you know, if you listen to the Fed, they talk about uh, the inflation that we're seeing being transitory. There's a lot of pushback online. What, do you, what are your thoughts on the latest CPI print? Are we actually headed towards yeah. inflation or is this, in fact, transitory? Well, I, I think a couple things. And, and first of all, I, I wouldn't say we're heading towards inflation. I'd say we've had it for a year. Um, right. I, and people will. Uh, so I, I, first thing I would say is I get labeled as a deflationist because I talk about a stronger dollar. I talk about problems in the banking system. I talk about, you know, this may not last. And so um, if I if people want to call me a deflationist, that's fine. I don't necessarily mind it, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm stuck in that camp either. Um, you know, the interesting thing, in my opinion, is that we could actually have a strong dollar and in inflation along with it. it that they don't necessarily, you know, uh, work opposite to each other. Uh, but the, but with regard to the CPI, I mean, you got to remember the numbers that we're posting now are year over year numbers. And the year the numbers a year ago were just absolutely awful. And I, I remember a year ago talking to people uh, with regard to equities and saying, you know, I thought equities were going to go higher. And they and they said, well, how is that possible? And I said, well, you know, in a year from now, the year over year comps probably look pretty good because you know this year is so bad 
And it's kind of the same thing with commodities and a number of other inflation indicators. And, you know, so we have had people say, Brent, how come you can't see that we prices are rising? It's like, you know, I have eyes. I can see that prices are rising. But the question isn't whether prices have risen. The question is whether or not it's sustainable or not. Right. And I am in the camp that says, unless a few things happen from here, that it's not sustainable. Now, if those things happen, and we can talk about what some of those things are, then I'm open to the idea of inflation. But I am doubtful those things are going to happen. And so I'm more in the deflation camp than continuous inflation camp. But, you know, I, I, I feel like I can change my mind pretty quickly on that as well. So um, anyway, we, we can talk about that a little bit if you want to. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what are some of those reasons that um, would actually make you change your mind and, and flip to being an, an inflationista? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, I think a lot of people think because the Fed has, quote unquote, printed so much money that there's all this liquidity sloshing around and this prices are going through the roof. And I think that largely the printing of the money has had more of a psychological effect than an actual liquidity effect. And it's Jay Powell goes on 60 Minutes and tells you he's printing money, 90% of the people are going to believe him. Um, 99% of the people don't really understand how the mon monetary system works. And so if he tells you he's printing money, they don't have the knowledge or the expertise to challenge him on it, even if they wanted to. But the other, the biggest part of the inflationary effects that I think that, that are leading to the inflationary effects are not because we have this runaway growth and money printing and we've got these great prospects going forward, but it's that we're still suffering uh, from the supply chain issues due to COVID. And I don't necessarily think those are gonna go away. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that we're gonna have a deflationary crash. We certainly could, uh, but I'm not married to that idea, but I, because I think that these, you know, supply chains have been disrupted and I don't think that they're gonna get repaired overnight. And so I think a large amount of the price rise is due to supply constraints, not necessarily the printing of money or, or growth concerns. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, for sustained inflation to happen, you kind of need to have uh, velocity of money or for, or for credit to be created and for the money to be circulating. And it just isn't. Um, you know, you, you look at the, the bank lending and it's basically non-existent. It's, uh, it jumped a year ago, um, you know, after March of 2020. It jumped in April and May. It went up a little bit in June. And then every month since then, it's been falling. And you know the banks are getting all these reserves from uh, from QE, uh, but they're not using them as collateral to then make loans. Um, you know, uh, and if the, if if the banks are taking their liquidity, and they're parking it in reserves or buying treasury bonds, that tells me that they're not too excited about the economic prospects of anybody that they loan the money to. Pretty sure there's people out there that would borrow the money if they could. Well, not but you know, in some cases there are, in some cases there's not, but. The, the point is, is that to, to really get this lasting inflation and to get this, you know, for the stock market to continue running, to get this kind of runaway inflationary boom, uh, you need to get bank lending to go along with it because that's who really prints the money. The Fed doesn't print the money. The banks, commercial banks are who print 90% of the money. And right there, they're not, right now, they are not printing it. I mean, and that's, maybe they will. And if they start printing it, then, you know, I will say, hey, now they're doing it. Now we need to think about it. But as of right now, they're not doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you just kind of outlined the three key debates there, or right, uh, kind of components to, to focus on, which is one, kind of supply side versus demand side inflation. Uh, two, there's kind of uh, this liquidity problem. And then three, there's just 
good old-fashioned bank lending, uh, which is how broad money supply growth actually happens. And, and we're just not seeing that, right? Um, so let's talk about liquidity a little bit. Uh, so we had Steve Van Meter uh, on this podcast last week, um, which actually just came out today. We're recording on um, May 26th. And, you know, basically his contention was QE as, as a monetary program is largely actually very misunderstood. Uh, you know, you kind of see those uh, memes where it's like money printer go burr, uh, right? Look at all this money that we're creating. But in reality, uh, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, and that the program is actually designed to strengthen the dollar while lowering interest rates. And that doesn't necessarily create liquidity at all. So what's your kind of perspective on QE as a program and why might that not actually be as inflationary as some people think? Well, I think I think it's kind of somewhat related to the bank lending. Again, the idea is that you pull interest rates down, it allows there to be a sh smaller hurdle rate for people to go out, borrow money, and then invest it in an economic project or some kind of a program that that, that exceeds that hurdle rate, right? Um, but the loans aren't happening. And again, we're kind of going back to the same thing that that money isn't being borrowed the way it was, and the banks aren't lending money the way they were. You know, bank sta lending standards are high. You know, you'd think right. if they had all this liquidity um, that they would be excited to make loans, but they're not. Um, you know, bank lending standards are very high. Uh, um, in other words, it's the, the, I, the meme is that there's all this liquidity out there. And to, to some extent, maybe there is. But the idea that all you have to do is walk outside, hold up your hand, and it's easy to get a loan is just simply not true. Um, mm. Because the banks uh, are not making loans and, and the, the, they're making the lending standards to get a loan very high. I'll give you an example. Um, we have a client um, who, whose family has been developing real estate for since the 60s, so 60 years um, on the West Coast and throughout the Midwest. And they are one of Wells Fargo's biggest clients. Um, they're, the value of their prop, the value of the debts that they have, the loans that they have versus the value of their property is like 10 or 15%. So pretty low. You know, they're not, they're not highly leveraged at all. And Wells Fargo does not want to give them any more loans to go do any more projects. Now, if this is your best, one of your best customers and you've been doing business with them for 60 years and they have a, you know, a debt ratio of like 10 or 15%, you would think that in this environment, you'd be excited to make them a loan, you know, in this booming economy that we have, but they don't. Um, so if that, if that family's having trouble getting a loan or, or they'll get the loan, but they're at terms that they just think are completely unrealistic and unfavorable. So my point is, is if that family's having trouble getting a loan, you know, imagine what the, you know, the average person out there, uh, how, how they're having to do it. So I think that that is a big part uh, of what's happening. And, you know, so, so QE, while, while in theory, it's supposed to provide all this liquidity, they, it, it's like, it's like the quarterback handing it off to the running back. So the, the you know, the Fed is the quarterback and the Fed, you know, calls the ball and they, the, the center snaps it to them and they turn around and they hand the ball to the running back. But the running back ain't running. The running back's just kind of sitting there and he'll down it because he doesn't want to lose any yards. It's like he doesn't want to lose any yards. He doesn't care if he makes any yards. He just doesn't want to lose any yards. And so he grabs mm -hmm. the ball and he sits down. Um, and I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but, but to really, for QE to really drive um, economic growth, inflation, and... Um, you know, general prosperity, there needs to be a partnership between the central bank and the commercial banks. And right now, uh, they're not uh, they're not working together. So so why is that? Right. Because my understanding of QE is you're injecting liquidity into the system. You're basically doing this asset swap, which is primarily between 
you know, treasury securities, MBS, that kind of stuff, you're putting more reserves into the banking system. Theoretically, that should, in, that should encourage uh, the commercial banking system to actually lend and create broad money supply. Why is that not happening? The, the biggest problem I see is, number one, there's a, there's a misunderstanding of, of what bank reserves are and what they're not. Um, hmm. And without getting into the whole debate again, bank reserves are basically an accounting entry. Uh, they're not the same as cash. The banks can't just take these reserves that they get as a result of QE and go do whatever they want with it. They can use it within the banking system, but it's not, they can't pay salaries. They can't go invest in a project. It's just, it's not cash. Um, anyway, um, so, so, so that's part of the problem. Um, and then the other thing, the other reason that it's not happening is banks are in the business of lending money and getting their money back, right? And despite interest rates being low, you know, so, so interest rates being low, they have a hurdle rate as well, right? They only want to lend to projects that are going to exceed the risk of their, their capital being out there. And if they don't think that the project that they're going to fund is going to return them a higher level than their cost of capital and that they're going to get paid back in the end, they don't want to make a they don't want to make the loan. And so that tells me if banks aren't lending, we have this amazing economy, apparently, right? You know, employment's on the rise, stock markets are at the all time high, inflationary pressures are picking up and, you know, it, it's a, you know, there's a housing shortage, all this kind of stuff. Well, you would think that the banks would be excited to make loans, but they're not because they don't think they're going to get their money back. It's just like you or I, I don't want to make a loan to somebody that's not going to pay me back. And the banks don't want to make a loan to somebody that's not going to pay them back. And so, all of this reserves that the that the Fed is giving to the banks just clog up the banking system. And the problem now is that there's so many reserves in the banking system, the banks are out there just parking them in T-bills and bonds and stuff that it's actually pushing interest rates down. So the market, the banks are saying, we want negative interest rates. <laughs> we, want, we want to hold on to these reserves so bad and we want to buy bonds so bad that rates are going negative or short short-term rates are going negative. And so the Fed has actually been pulling some of these reserves out of the system, draining liquidity in order to keep the price of the uh, to keep interest rates positive. So on the one hand, we're supposedly having this booming economy, you know, employment's picking up, stock markets are rising, profits are rising. But on the other hand, banks don't don't want to make any loans and, and interest rates are about ready to go negative. So you know, which side are you going to bet on? Now, there's a lot of people betting that the inflation is going to continue and that the, the growth is going to continue and that this global reflation and is going to happen. And, you know, we're going to allocate to emerging markets because that's where all the growth is. But on the other hand, the banks are saying that ain't, that ain't true. We're, we're, we're not on board. So one of those sides is going to win. Now, I happen right. to think that the banks are going to win in the short term. Now, they might not. And if they don't, you know, I, I've you know, people hear me talk about the dollar a lot. And the reason I talk about the dollar is I think it's the single biggest risk to global markets. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that risk is going to materialize. I think it's going to, but I don't have 100% of my money bet on it. Um, but because I think it is such a high risk, and if it does happen, it is so detrimental and it is so it can be so egregiously negative, I have to at least plan for it. Um, and so that that's that's what I think is going on is I think, you know, the, the Fed has done a, and the central banks around the world have done a good job of convincing people that they have everything in their control. Um, they've, you know, flushed the system with reserves and that has convinced people that they're printing money. And so people have gone out and put their money in, 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 into investments that, that push inflationary indicators higher. 
but it, I'm not convinced it's going to last. And uh, the banks aren't convinced it's going to last either. And so, you know, typically the banks end up being right. Now, they're not always right. And so maybe this time they'll be wrong. Um, but uh, I, I'd lean towards the banks being right. Yeah. So before we kind of get into the dollar, because I know, you know, especially when you're talking inflation versus yeah. deflation, really all roads uh, lead back yeah. to the U.S. dollar. I do want to at least get into this idea of like kind of the supply versus demand driven inflation. Right. All of us kind of watched um, sure. what was sort of a meme, right, with that ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal. Right. It, it, that deflected yeah, right. almost yeah. a comically large amount of, uh, of global right. trade right through that one route. Um, and people said you're going to see backups and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think there really is a big difference in between kind of supply chains, production coming back online, can't meet demand quickly enough um, versus yeah. this other type of demand, uh, longer lasting sort of inflation. So how do you think about those two different types of inflation in your mind? And what makes you think that we're seeing kind of a, a supply driven inflation right now? I think it is mainly supply driven because, for example, copper, you know, I, now I, I a year ago, I wouldn't have been surprised to see copper go much lower than it had been. Um, but it's a, it's a combination of two things. If, if, the, if the supply had been cut, but the Fed and the other central banks and the monetary authorities had not done a good job of convincing everybody that things were okay and that things were getting better, then prices of commodities still could have fallen even though supply was falling because in that case maybe demand was falling more than supply was right but because they were able to convince everybody that they had everything in control and because they convinced everybody that they were going to print enough money um, to, to make up for the lack of demand demand kind of stayed the same or went up a little bit and supply crash. So in that environment, when you have demand stay flat and supply crash, price rises, right? Um, so I understand exactly why prices have gone up. The question is whether or not the monetary authorities can continue to convince people <laughs> that demand is going to stay the same, right? Or that demand is going to grow. Uh, maybe they can. I'm not convinced that they can. And the banks certainly aren't printing like we talked about earlier, for this really to continue, we need the banks to increase the supply of money and they're not doing it. So um, in my mind, the, the, the central banks have to continue convincing people that it can last. And, and the, the central banks are actually out there telling you it's not going to last. The central banks are actually out there telling you it's transitory. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm no fan of central bankers and I, I actually hate the fact that I actually sort of agree with them on the transitory, transitory stuff here. But, you know, the fact is, is if we... Think about where prices were a year ago. Think, think about where they were 15 months ago, 16 months ago before COVID. They were at this level. And then we went into COVID and they went here. And then they went up like this, right? So now we're here. Now let's fast forward 12 months. We're now we're, so, so we had the base effects from being way down here to way up here. So that's what's making the inflation look so hot. You're going off a very low base. You know, if you, if you took where prices are now based on where they were at the beginning of last year rather than at the lows in you know March or April, prices would still be high, but not nearly as up as much as the, the, the CPI is showing year over year for 12 months. But now let's fast forward 12 months and let's see where we are 12 months from now, because now we're here. Now this is the base. Right. So are we going to go there? Right. Or are we going to come down? Because we could come down still be higher than where we were 15 months ago, but year over year, it's going to look bad. It's going to look like we're going back into deflation, right? 
And so that's part of my reasoning for, for saying that I'm not convinced that this is not transitory. I'm not convinced this is sustainable. I'm open to the idea of it being sustainable, but I just don't think it is. Um, and I think the evidence, uh, the historical evidence, I think is on my side. But, you know, I, I can be wrong. We'll see. <laughs> but I, I've, I've got my, I've got yeah. positions um, out there that will be fine regardless of what happens. But I am leaning towards it being transitory. Yeah. I agree. I also, you know, I, I do listen to, uh, you know, kind of a student of, you know, Lacey Hunt, uh, you know, David Rosenberg as yeah. well, who are kind of some of the prominent, if sure. you want to label them like this, uh, deflationists. And I think there are a couple, you know, much broader kind of macro topics that people don't factor in as much here, right? Which is one, demographics, uh, right? Where, the, you know, the, the demographics, not only in yeah. the U.S., but also in Asia, right, whose labor force we've essentially... Um, sequestered, you know, for U.S. production, uh, they're massively deflationary. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. the other thing is, if you look at debt to GDP, yeah. I know, look, there, I get the arguments where, hey, one person's debt is another person's asset. But at a certain point, there's too much yeah. debt, right? And, and for those who are kind of pointing exactly. towards, hey, you know, look at 1940s, look at 1970s, look at the inflation that happened then, even if there is inflation, we are not going to see 1940s style uh, and 1970s style interest rate hikes. That's just not possible, right? right. So I guess right. even in a situation where uh, inflation persists and it's more than transitory, I mean, you kind of end up in a, in a regime of financial repression at that stage, right? Because even if inflation is yeah. going, they've got no choice but to keep the interest rates low. I don't know if you agree or, or disagree with any of that. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we are in financial repression or, or they are attempting financial repression. They are due, the, and when I say they, I mean monetary authorities, governments, you know, bureaucrats around. And it's not just the U.S., it's around the world. I mean, they are attempting to get real rates low, right? They're trying to get it to where um, the, the, the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate. And so that over time, their debts become easier to service. And this is, this is not a new phenomenon. This is, this is as old as time. This is, this is the playbook. Human, right. you know, human nature never changes. And that's why history kind of cycles over and over and over. It's people, you know, no matter how many times that they learn that leverage uh, is a killer, people lever up. And then as, even though they try to be responsible, you know, at some point they've just borrowed too much. And, they, you know, politicians, the way they get elected is that they promise things. And the way that they pay for these promises is that they borrow money. And so you inevitably get to this point where the debts either have to get paid off or the, the debts have to get satisfied either by crashing and, you know, the, the, the loan going bad or you have to inflate the debt away. And of course, they don't want deflation and, you know, the loans to not get paid because that creates all kinds of problems. So the, the standard playbook is to, to generate inflation. And so, you know, it's funny because people will tell me this all the time. They say, Brent, don't you get it? This is going to be financial repression. They're going to generate inflation higher than, um, you know, the, the interest rate. And <laughs> I always got, I was like, of course I, if, yes, yes, I get it. I completely get it. Just because they want it doesn't mean it's going to happen, right? Maybe it will, maybe they'll be successful, but I would say that they've been trying to do this for 15 years. Well, they've been trying to do it for 12 years in the U.S. They've been trying to do it longer than that in Europe, and they've been trying to do it for 25 years in Japan. Now, maybe they figured it out this time. Maybe now in 2021, they figured it out. Maybe. And if, if that's true, then, you know, I'll have to get on board. But so far, I'm not convinced that they figured it out. So, again, just because something needs to happen or they, they want something to happen doesn't mean that it will. Um, and I, and I, 
this kind of goes back to, you know, I talk about all the time when you're allocating money. There's certain things that I would like to see happen, and then there's other things that I think that are actually going to happen, right? And I, I try not to invest based on what I want to see happen. I try to, you know, take my emotion out of it and place capital based on what I think is actually going to happen, regardless of whether I want it to or not. And, um, you know, so that, that, that I, I, think, I think a lot of that stuff is uh, kind of permeating the markets right now. People, you know, uh, investing for what they want to see happen rather than what's actually going to happen. Right. And, you know, one thing that I think was funny, there's a book that gets talked about a lot in kind of macro circles, uh, Market Wizards, uh, this Jack Schwager yeah. book, uh, yeah. where he interviews kind of like Bruce Kovner and Paul Tudor Jones yeah. and everything. You know, these interviews are taking place um, in the late 90s, like might be 89, something like that. Yeah. And if you listen to these interviews with these very prominent hedge fund managers, they're saying the same stuff that we're saying right now, yeah. but it's much smaller numbers, right? They're saying, you know, the deficit last year was 75 yeah, right. billion. Well, Inflation is right yeah. around the corner. <laughs> and, you know, it's hard because sometimes yeah. if you don't have that perspective, you know, I, I kind of listen and take it for face value what a lot of these people saying, it's like, you've been saying this for 40 years, man, you know, at a certain point, like, you're either wrong, because you're too early, or there was something yeah. fundamentally flawed about the analysis. And, and you need something different to create inflation than just a budget deficit. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think, you know, when it comes to predicting inflation, like, you got, I know, it's hard to call the catalyst or the trigger point or whatever it is. But you, there has to be more analysis, I think, than just we're running a big deficit. And I get it, there's twin deficits, I get it, but I kind of on your page, I think, you know, to make an informed call about that, you have to point to what's different this time. So yeah. I, I guess my last big question for you on this topic of inflation versus deflation, how transitory is this really before we move on to the US dollar is, I guess one of the things, you know, what, what Lacey Hunt always says is when the liabilities of central banks become legal tender, that's when we're likely to see inflation. And I'm wondering, you know, Lynn Alden talks a lot about this kind of transition that we're seeing finally from monetary into fiscal, right? Where you're where you're not seeing yeah. the central or the central bank just uh, printing these reserves or this kind of base money, but you're seeing real broad money um, injection, right, into the real economy. Uh, I'm curious, does that change your mind at all about what we're talking about? Especially because uh, you know we've seen deflation for so long that if that that channel of money creation were to persist, maybe we could actually see lasting inflation there. Yes and no. It can last for a while. It can last as long as the people believe that what the government's telling them. So, you know, can it last another year? Sure. Can it last 18 months? Yeah, probably. Um, but here's the thing is with, with, with fiscal spending, when governments spend money, everybody says, oh, the government's spending money now. We're going to have inflation. Well, as far as I can tell, the governments have been spending money for hundreds of years. I, this is not a new phenomenon. You know, um, you know, we've been running tr trillion dollar deficits for a decade. This is, you know, what's so we're adding a couple hundred billion now or even another trillion to it. Now, all of a sudden that's inflationary. Well, maybe. But what people forget is how is that money that they're spending being funded? So what I mean by that is and this this is important for people to understand who are perhaps new to you know, finance or, or the monetary system is that there's a difference between securitized debt and bank debt. Um, and treasury bonds are securitized debt. It's not bank debt. Um, so what I mean by that is when a company or an individual or when a treasury department such as the U.S. Treasury sells bonds, 
they issue bonds and they take cash out of the market. You know, people in the market buy those bonds. So that money that the bonds that the treasuries are being bought with is money that already exists. It's not, they're not printing new money to buy the bonds. It's money that already, so it's recycling money that already exists. And the recycling of the money can have a flow effect that can actually help, you know, the greasing of the economy and the, the flow of capital. But it, it's kind of like if you had a still pond, right? And it's just totally still, and you threw a rock in it. You're gonna, and it, it's gonna make a splash and the ripples are gonna go out across the pond. But five minutes later, it's gonna be flat again, right? So there was some flow there for a while while you know, right. the, the ripples from that splash, but eventually that pond is gonna go still again. And in order to get it flowing again, you need to throw another rock into it. Um, so securitized debt is a little bit like that. It's recycling, it's, it's swirling the, the water that already exists. It's not throwing more water into the pond. It's just making the water that exists in the pond circuit, um, circulate. But when you have securitized debt, um, when a bank lends money, when you go down to the bank and you say, I need you know, $250,000 for that condo in Oklahoma City or whatever it is, um, they create that money out of thin air, boom. That's new money. Now, now they're throwing new water into the pond, right? That's not just circulating the existing money. And so that's why, you know, that, that, that kind of goes back to my point earlier about, you know, inflation versus deflation is so far, the Fed keeps throwing rocks into the pond, <laughs> but, but the, the banks aren't throwing water into the pond, right? And so, um, you know, that, that kind of gets back to the is, fiscal spending inflationary. And in the short term, it has inflationary effects. And I won't sit here and say it doesn't have inflationary effects. The, the debate is not whether this stuff is inflationary. The, the, the debate is whether it is uh, lasting, whether it can continue, whether it's sustainable, right? And my argument is that without the banks helping them, it's not sustainable. Yeah, and I, I don't, I wish I had a crystal ball that I knew exactly when it would end or you know, it would last exactly 24 months. I don't know exactly, um, but uh, I think that if, if they're not able to get uh, you know the banking system to cooperate with them, the, the Fed the Fed is basically pushing on a string, for lack of a better word. Hmm. All right, so let's transition over and start talking about the dollar a little bit. Uh, you mentioned actually earlier in this interview, and I've, I've heard you say this as well, that a strong dollar is actually a big threat um, to the global financial system, right, and kind of against everyone's interest. Um, why do you think that? Whenever the inflation deflation debate comes up, it, it often then also goes to fiat money versus hard money, gold, Bitcoin, some kind of a commodity money that's not printable, that's you know stable. We used to be on a gold standard, and the gold standard, you know, kind of regulated the amount of capital that could be allocated and the amount of debt that could be issued, and it kind of kept governments honest of how much money they could spend. Um, but we all know that in you know the early 1970s, uh, the you know Nixon severed the you know the link between the dollar and gold, and so that kind of freed them up to spend as much as they want. And you know you just go to a number of different charts, and you just see you know go exponential since the, since the early 1970s. Um, but the reality is, is now we have the same system, the global system, except for a different thing is underlying the system. So whereas gold used to underlie the system. Now dollars underlie the system. And the dollar is the collateral off of which the entire global economy is levered. We're getting into this situation where there is so many debts in the world and not just, not just you know, Europe. So as an example, there's a lot, everybody talks about the, you know, it's getting close to 
you know, 28, 29 trillion now that the U.S. owes. Um, I don't even know what the latest number is. It's, it seems like it goes up, uh, you know, every month quite a bit. But um, and they always talk about what a big problem this is, and, and it is. It's a huge problem. But what people don't realize is that there's that many loans denominated in dollars outside the United States that non-U.S. entities owe, and so they have to get dollars somehow. And you know, those countries and those entities, they can't print dollars. Can the U.S. print dollars? Yeah, the U.S. can quote-unquote print dollars, um, but those other countries can't. So in the same way that years ago you couldn't print gold to help satisfy your debts, the rest of the world is in that same situation with the dollar. They can't print, do they can't print dollars to satisfy their debts, and they have a lot of debts, a lot of dollar debts. And if the money is not circulating and if credit, this kind of goes back to bank credit again, if credit isn't being extended, the, the, the dollars needed to service, just service, forget paying it off, just the service, the dollar debt, it makes those entities having to scramble to get dollars just to service their debt. If the dollar gets stronger versus a foreign currency, that makes it even hard. They have to, it takes even more Let's just use Australian dollars as an example. It takes it would take even more Australian dollars to buy U.S. dollars to service their debt. Now Australia doesn't actually have that huge of a, a U.S. dollar debt, but I just use that as an example. But but places like Turkey have a ton. You know, places uh, you know a number of African countries, a number of Asian countries, a number of emerging market countries have huge U.S. dollar debts. And the reason that these countries have taken out dollar debts is because there's so much demand for dollars versus their own currency that if they issue debt they get a lower rate so you know you can issue dollar debt and not, i'm just going to make up a number you pay three percent or four percent and if you issue issue local debt you pay seven percent or eight percent well you know most of the goods that they sell they're getting dollars for goods so it makes it very easy for them to you know issue dollar debt and then take the dollars they, they, that they get for selling their goods and service the dollar debt and it's cheaper the problem is, is that if you get into a, a situation where your economy is slowing down and you're having to print more money um, in your local economy, then <laughs> your local currency starts to fall and it makes it even harder to buy those dollars on the open market to service your debt. So uh, it eventually becomes this vicious cycle where um, everybody scrambles uh, for the dollar debt. The other thing that makes it hard is that I think that we're getting into this era of uh, this Triffin's dilemma where, so there's this, it goes back a number of years, right. I think 60 years ago, this guy came up with Triffin's dilemma, which said, when you have a global reserve currency, when you, when one country's currency focuses or, or serves as the global reserve currency, at some point in the future, the needs of the domestic economy are going to come into conflict with the global economy. And, you know, we've, you know, Trump is no longer in power or, or in, in, uh, as a president, but I think one thing that he did was I think that he he did a good job of, of explaining or showing the country and um, that that perhaps the, what we had been doing for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years regarding manufacturing or where the, our trade deals, you know, perhaps were not in the best interest of the United States. And, you know, so we've kind of had this kind of nationalistic movement, for lack of a better word, in the U.S. And we've seen these nationalistic movements around the world and in other countries as well. And so, so these nationalistic movements, these are the opposite of global cooperation, right? It's like going focusing on the domestic rather than focusing on the globe. And so, you know, I think that we're going to end up in this era where, you know, 
while the U.S. has to focus on domestic issues, they're not as willing to bail out or serve the rest of the world. And that becomes a problem because the rest of the world needs dollars. And until a new system is designed, there is no other game in town. It's the dollar. And so uh, I, I continue to think that we are going to, as a result of all the debt in the world, to your point earlier, you said eventually the debt matters, right? I think that we're going to have a global debt crisis. And when we have the global debt crisis, I think it will spill over into becoming a currency crisis. And when we come into the currency crisis, that's when I think the dollar rallies. So that hasn't happened yet. So I thought, you know, back going back to 2018 and 2019, I started talking about the coming currency crisis, the coming sovereign debt crisis. I thought we would have already been in it by now. Um, and I, part of the reason I thought that we would be in it by now is because I thought countries would stop cooperating and just kind of, you know, go it alone, so to speak. I think what happened with COVID, I initially thought it was accelerating it, but in hindsight, I was wrong. And I think what, what COVID was so big and so severe, it forced everybody to kind of work together. And when they work together, they can extend the game. And so I think COVID actually extended the game. And so we haven't entered this currency crisis yet. So um, I think when we get into this currency crisis, I think you're going to see the dollar go a lot higher. And I think it's going to become kind of this vicious loop where um, you know, dollar strength gets more dollar strength than other countries' weakness. We could be, you know, it, it gets more uh, currency weakness. So um, we have, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, so, you know, I've been early. And it's funny, in this business, people say, well, Brent, why can't you just admit you're wrong? And it's like, I, I, I'm wrong. I, I've admitted this several times. I thought it would have happened already and it hasn't. Now, the question is whether does it still happen? You know, I don't know. I think it's likely to happen. And I think, again, like I said earlier, I think, the ramifications of it happening are so severe that I'm not willing to do nothing and, and wait for it to happen. I, I think it's important to have some protections against that. Um, and so I still think that that's coming. And again, whether it happens later this year or a year from now or 18 months, two years, I don't know. I wish I had a crystal ball, but I do still think it's coming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, timing is really tough, right? And I mean, even if you look at uh, you know, 2008, the great financial crisis, there were plenty of folks, right, that actually made that bet just early, right? Like starting in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. And they, they kind of just made that bet earlier than kind of like the Mark Hart's, uh, you know, of the yeah. world who, who eventually got the timing right. Uh, but just because you got the timing wrong doesn't mean that in principle, from a first principle standpoint, uh, you know, you were wrong. Um, yeah. and, and I think the way you frame this as, you know, when we go through global crises, the most likely next one being a, a global debt crisis, there's a big squeeze in terms of dollars, uh, right? Because everyone needs to get their hands on dollars. All the debt is denominated in dollars. Um, and when you really think about it, you know, we used to go through these problems um, when gold was the reserve currency of the world as well. And one of the big problems that we were trying to solve by moving to this fiat system is that there was no way to uh, allow for a demand function, right? That the needs of the currency kind of needs yeah. to conform, at least in some way, to the needs of the economy. But the way that it's structured right now is that all these debts are denominated in U.S. dollars. The main flow of real U.S. dollar broad money creation is the U.S. banks and they're not lending. So essentially there's this structural problem for whatever reason our banking system is not providing them. And the rest of the world needs these dollars. So what you're starting to see is actually these offshore originators of the system that originates dollar-based debt, uh, which is yeah. the euro dollar system, uh, which is – let's just call it a pretty complicated beast. Uh, but you know, how, how does, how does, uh, in your mind, kind of the Euro dollar system, first of all, can you just give us an overview of like, yeah. what is it and how does it kind of factor? Into yeah. yeah, yeah. That you're so, talking about right now. 
so I'll, 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 I'll keep it pretty simple because it, it can become endlessly complicated. Uh, well, I mean, on the one hand, it's super simple. And on the other hand, it's you can go as far down the rabbit hole as you want. And, and it can be extremely complicated. But essentially, think of it like this. You've got the dollar market. You've got a yen market. You've got a Brazilian real market. You've got a euro market. So you've got all these different currency markets, right? And they all correspond to that country. But then in addition to all of the individual domestic markets and those and the currencies associated with them, you have another market called the euro dollar market, which is not euros. It's completely different than euros. It's dollars that exist outside the United States. And that market is bigger than the market for dollars inside the United States. So not only is there a big market for dollars inside the United States, which dwarfs the markets of all the other currencies, but there's an even bigger dollar market outside the United States. And it is non-regulated. It is non-measurable. It is endlessly complicated, uh, but it all exists on the extension of dollar credit. And as long as that dollar credit outside the banking system, outside the United States is being extended, the global economy runs. But when that starts to contract and that Euro dollar market lacks funding or, or, or people in that Euro dollar market cannot get Euro dollars to satisfy their Euro dollar loans, really, really bad things happen. You know, 2008 was largely, it was, was it started as a result of, of, of the, the housing crisis, but it became a Euro dollar issue. As, as funding of dollars became harder and harder to get. And, you know, this is, it's what led to in the, in the spring of, or in the fall of 2019, we had the Euro uh, or the, the, the repo spike. And then it manifested itself in a very large way last year in, um, in March of 2020. And, you know, it's, <laughs> And it's because there's so much demand for dollars. But the, the reason that it becomes a problem is there is no, so the Fed oversees the US domestic dollar market and the ECB oversees the Euro market and the Bank of Japan oversees uh, the yen market. And if you understand the way the system is designed, there's base money and then the base money is used to loan new money into existence. And we go back to our pond. As long as the flow is high enough in that pond, that system is fine. But if the flow stops, that central bank has to come in and throw more water into the pond, like what we were talking about earlier. The problem is with the euro dollar market, there is no central bank overseeing it to come along and re-collateralize it. There's no central bank to come on and throw more water in the pond when the liquidity starts to drain out of it. And so that's what you see. And so one of the ways that that market does get extra liquidity is either, like you said, bank extensions, uh, either either from the U.S. to outside the world or the extension of dollar credit by inst entities outside the U.S. Or what they did last year was they did swap lines. So the Fed loaned money to the other central banks who then loaned money uh, to their entities that needed dollar financing. Uh, but the point is, is that when that flow stops, really bad things happen and they happen really, really quickly. And I've had several people over the last year who have said, Brent, the dollar's been going down for a year now. Why don't you, how can you not see this? How can you not acknowledge it? And I just have, of course I see it. It's the dollar's down 10% in the last 13 months. I, you, you, do you really think I can't see this? Um, and 
the point is, is that when this happens, so then they're like, well, why don't you give up on the trade then? And the, then I say, well, first of all, you, you make this sound as like this is the only thing I'm invested in, which is completely not the case. My point is that this is such an important issue. You should have a portion of your portfolio allocated to it in case it does manifest itself. And I think it is going to manifest itself. So I can't just ignore it. But And then they'll say, well, why don't you just wait until the dollar starts to go up again? And I say, well, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know the exact timing. But what I do know is that on March or in February 28th of last year of 2020, the dollar was like 97 or 98. 10 days later, it was at 94. And everybody said the dollar's going to crash. And 10 days later, it was at 103. And the world was on its knees begging for dollars. So all of that happened in a three-week period. Now, I have an ego, but my ego isn't big enough to think that I can time that perfectly. You know, I wish I could, but I can't. And because I think this is going to play out in the next three or four years, I'm prepared to keep a position for the next three or four years in case it does. Um, because I think that this is the single biggest risk to the market, this euro-dollar market and dollar shortage. And I, I know people have a hard time comprehending this dollar shortage when the Fed is, quote-unquote, printing every month. Uh, but the, my point is, is that it can come out of nowhere and it can overwhelm. And the numbers that the Fed has quote unquote printed so far are nowhere near enough to satisfy it if that euro dollar system crashes. The euro dollar system dwarfs the US dollar system. And so I think the problem is just much bigger than anybody can comprehend. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's just like kind of take some of this theory and like actually, you know, put it into real world use cases. like. What does a strong dollar mean? Because sometimes when I think about this, I'm like, okay, I could see how a strong dollar is actually bullish for stocks, right? Because strong dollar means you're attracting capital inside of the United States that should theoretically pump, uh, you yeah. know, U.S. denominated assets. Okay, that's good. I could also though see how a strong dollar is is actually bad uh, for something like U.S. equities because that makes our exports less competitive overall. You know, if you think about it from a high level standpoint, if you think about stocks being denominated in dollars, stronger dollar equal you know, less of them, uh, you know, less of them being worth stocks. So is a strong dollar, is it good or bad? I mean, how do you think about this from an asset standpoint? First thing I would say is that within a band, it doesn't really matter. Let's call it yeah. 90, 80 to 95, like that 15 or 85 to 95, it doesn't really matter, right? Um, I think the, the whole world would love it if the, if the Fed could take the dollar to 80 and just hold it there for 10 years. I think everybody would love it. All the central banks would love it. Uh, well, Europe and Japan might not love that the that the euro and the yen, um, you know, appreciated another ten percent because I think that would then hurt their exports. Uh, but you know, they need to keep the dollar at a level where there's not stress in the funding markets and and there's enough dollars that you don't have to scramble to get them. Um, and as a if 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 Let's just say the dollar was at 94, 95, and that was indicating that it was kind of strong, but not super strong. I think that would be indication that capital's flowing to the US. It's one of the uh, more um, promising looking you know, sectors of the globe. And that you know, that's not necessarily bad for stocks and not necessarily bad for businesses. And you know, equity prices could rise. Um, maybe if you get from, and then it kind of depends on the speed with which it's happening, right? And you could probably even go to 97, 98. If it was just got a slow, steady grind, probably not a big deal. 
But if it goes from 94 to 104 in a week or in 10 days, like it did in 2020, that's a problem because that that's an indication of you're getting a short squeeze, right? The dollars are so, and in that environment, initially, that's actually bad for U.S. stocks, right? Because now everybody's not just uh, you know the euro dollar market, but even in the U.S. market, they're scrambling for dollars, and so you know in that environment, that's maybe bad for stocks. Where I have said that we could get a, a, a situation where the dollar is rising really fast and really hard and U.S. equities are going with it, that is a result of entering a debt crisis, a sovereign debt crisis. And if the sovereign debt crisis happens, that means that the price of sovereign bonds is falling. And the sovereign bond market, so other than the currency market, it's the biggest market in the world. So if now money is flowing out of sovereign bonds, it's got to go somewhere. And I think one of the only places that it can go, that the big enough market to handle those flows is U.S. equities. And then I think that if you know someone in Brazil is trying to decide, do well, do I own a Brazilian bond that pays me seven percent, or do I buy you know Coca-Cola which pays me four? And if the currency of the dollar is going up versus the real, maybe I just go buy Coca-Cola. Right, I, I use that as an example, and so in that environment where you're having a global sovereign crisis and capital is looking for the safe harbor, again, people say you know the U.S. is not looking so good. I don't know how you can say it's a safe harbor. You know, again, it's all relative. You know, right. pension funds do not have the the opportunity to just sell everything and go sit in cash. Pension funds cannot sell everything and go buy gold. Or pension funds cannot sell everything and go buy Bitcoin. Right? They are going to allocate most of their money to a major asset class. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to increase their cash holdings. It doesn't mean that they're not going to increase their gold holdings. It doesn't mean that they won't start to buy some Bitcoin, but they're not going to sell 100% of their portfolio and put it all into gold or Bitcoin. So that means that capital, as it's leaving sovereign bonds, it's going to look for a big market, liquid market, and one of the biggest, most liquid markets that I think can sustain those flows is the U.S. equities. And so that's why I think, you know, under normal circumstances, the dollar going to 120 or 130, it's just a disaster, right? And I, I'm not saying that that, it would still be a disaster for the U.S. And we got to remember, if, if we get into a situation where the dollar is going to 120 or 130 and U.S. equities are going with it, it's not necessarily a good thing because the world is a really bad place if that's happening. And I think that's another thing that people you know, kind of mistake is that they, they think that I say that the U.S. is just going to be this boom and it's going to be a beautiful place to be. I don't think that at all. I think it's going to be really hard, but I think it's going to be better here uh, than, than elsewhere. And I, and I think capital will be treated better here than it will be elsewhere. If you see us heading towards kind of a sovereign debt crisis, then, I mean, do you think that we are going to eventually enter financial oppression and then theoretically like gold and Bitcoin and those sorts of uh, store yeah. value assets should perform well? Or, or do you not see us uh, entering financial oppression? No, no, I do. I, I think that we will. Well, it kind of goes back to Lacey Hunt's. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, but you know, it's you know, you have all these policies, and eventually there's an asymmetric response, right? And I think I don't want to switch gears and go too far back there, but I, I you know, and I'm certainly not going to speak for Lacey because you know nobody can speak for Lacey better than himself. But I think what Lacey's getting at is that QE. Other than the psychological aspects of QE, which says, hey, we're printing money, go change your behavior, which does work for a while. 
the, and as Steve Van Meter pointed out, QE is largely negative. It's largely deflationary, right? And so they do QE, they do QE, they do QE, they get a little bit of a run and then it falls over. They get a little bit of a run and then it falls over. And so then they do another policy and it gets a little bit on. Finally, it gets, they're so desperate that they make the bank reserves legal tender. And then you get the asymmetric response. It's, it's like a ratchet. It's like it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And the monetary policy gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And then finally, they make the bank reserves legal tender. Now it's just free to do whatever they want. And boom, then you get the just super runaway inflation, right? And I think that's probably what will happen. You know, governments around the world, central banks around the world will continue to do QE programs. They'll continue to, you know, they'll do UBI. They'll do loan forbearance, all of this stuff. And eventually there will be no other choice, but, you know, make the bank reserves legal tender and then we'll get the, the hyperinflation. Now, I think this is probably a good point to bring up that you can have inflation and deflation at the same time. In the one hand, you can have stagflation, which means in one market, you can have some assets inflating and other assets deflating. So that's stagflationary effects. But the other thing that you can have is you can have inflation in one currency and deflation in another. And this is this is the key that I think people need to think about. It doesn't so much affect us in the United States because we only use dollars. You know, very few Americans take out euro loans. You know, very few Americans take out uh, loans in Brazilian reals. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but this is not this is not a you know, and very few businesses do either, right? It's, it's just not the common occurrence, but there's a ton of, you know, as we talked about earlier with the Euro dollar market, the rest of the world absolutely takes out dollar loans. And even if they don't take out dollar loans, everywhere in the world knows what the dollar exchange rate is. You fly to Morocco and go to a souk in Marrakesh, they will tell you what the dollar exchange rate is. You go to the beaches in Rio de Janeiro, they will, you grab any party on the beach, they will tell you what the dollar exchange rate is. Same thing in Singapore, same thing in Hong Kong, same thing in Africa. Um, it's just the way it is um, because the dollar is so important. But if I, you know, you walk down the street in New York City, grab a, you know, grab a rent or, you know, in, uh, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska, you ask them what the exchange rate with the Brazilian real is. They're going to look at you like you got two heads. They have no idea. Right. Um, and so this is an example where someone I'll, I'll use, let's just use Argentina as an example, because it's always such a disaster monetarily anyway, but you know, they can have runaway inflation in um, Argentinian peso terms, but have deflationary effects in dollar terms. Venezuela is a perfect example. We'll use Venezuela. You go and you look at the stock market of Venezuela over the last 10 years in Venezuelan Bolivar terms, stock market went through the roof, right? Because the currency lost value. But look at that same stock market in US dollar terms and it crashed. And the reason this is important is the rest of the world uses dollars. So, you know, I think when you're talking about inflation, the first thing you need to understand is which currency are you talking about? If you're talking about the dollar or are you talking about the local currency? And because I think there's such high demand for dollars relative to other currencies, as we move forward in time, even though the U.S. is quote unquote printing, so is the rest of the world, but there's less demand for their right. currencies. And as we get into this debt crisis, and listen, maybe it'll never come. I think debt has consequences. I think we will get into it. And when that happens, I think these other countries 
will have to print even more than the U.S. is, and will have to do even more of these stimulus programs than the U.S. is. And I think that is going to make their currencies lose value versus the dollar. So they're going to have inflation in their local currency terms, and they're going to have deflation in dollar terms. Um, and that's going to create this crisis, which is going to, you know, I think, push money into the dollar. And so I don't know if that helps explain the whole inflation versus deflation or the or the, um, no, it does. the you know the debt crisis but I think that is the ramifications and that is the that is the side effects of a debt of a global debt crisis because I don't think it's just a US dollar debt crisis I think you know euro debts you know yen debts yuan debts I mean it's it's a global phenomenon yeah so uh, you've already been super generous with your time I guess just last you know question here uh, before before we depart but how if, if you're an I mean you are an investor you manage money for other on the behalf of other folks yeah. I mean how do you prepare folks like this like how, how do you guard against I guess this worry yeah. that you have of the the, the debt uh, deflationary cycle well so there's there's a couple ways that we've prepared for it first of all for my clients I customize everything to them individually so none of my clients have the same portfolio now all the portfolios have similar features because I'm the manager and my belief system is going to show up in there. Uh, but some clients, some, some clients may have a business that pays them a very good income. And so they don't necessarily need fixed income or some kind of a yield generating asset to provide their income. Other clients, maybe they don't have that business. You know, maybe they just have the cash that they've given me to invest. And we've got to design a system that, you know, works for them to provide for their living expenses. So we may allocate theirs a little different. But what I, what I do for everybody um, as, a, as a roadmap, and again, nobody does this exactly, but there's this, uh, this thesis called the permanent portfolio. And it goes back to the 70s. Uh, this guy named Harry Brown wrote this book on, on the permanent portfolio. It basically is a combination of 25% cash or fixed income, 25% equities, you know, 25% real estate, and 25% precious metals or, or hard assets of some kind. Um, and so this kind of became popular in the 70s, but the reality is, is very, very wealthy families that have had money for generation after generation after generation have always done some version of this as well. You know, they have land, they have art, they have gold, they have businesses, you know, so they have, they have a little bit of that. And the reason they do that is because you're prepared for everything. If, if you did this portfolio that I mentioned to you a minute ago, 25, 25, 25, 25, just those four asset classes, and you did it for the last 60 years, uh, you would have only lost money, I think, on five or six years. The most you ever would have lost was 12%, and you would have kept up with the S&P 500. Now, if you did the S&P 500 over the same time period, you would have had, you know, you would have lost money, like, uh, what is it, like 12 or 15 years. So half the time you would have lost money. Uh, many of them would be down 20% years, down 30% years. And so this, the volatility is off the charts. So the, and if you do this permanent portfolio, you're ready for you work for war, revolution, booms, economic expansions, busts, inflation, deflation. You'll get through anything. And so I always use that as the core to like say, this is what we're going to build it around. And then the way that I plan for this debt crisis is because I can't time it perfectly. And because I could just be completely wrong is I've said, if this happens, the knock on effects will be so severe that there's a number of asymmetric opportunities out there. And so we basically designed a fund that we have said, this should be 5% of your overall portfolio. Um, in some special cases, because of some special circumstance, 
maybe 10, but certainly not more than 10% of an overall portfolio. And the idea is that if this, if, if what happened, if what we think is going to happen happens, the 5% allocation could literally go up five, six, seven times. Now I'm, I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I'm saying those are the types of trades that we're doing in there. And so if that happens, the 5% can become 30% or 35%. Well, that means if the 95% in traditional assets gets cut down by 30 or 40%, and now it's at 60 cents, well, the 35 cents of the, of the, the hedge added to the 60 cents of the traditional, your portfolio is still pretty much whole, right? So it's a hedge against these really bad outcomes. Uh, and if we're wrong, which we have been, um, you know, we could lose half our money. <laughs> and to be honest, we have. Um, you know, there's been a big drawdown in, in these positions because of what the, it hasn't happened. But the other 95% of the portfolio that is in traditional assets has grown a lot. Their businesses have grown. Uh, the equities that they own have grown. The real estate that they have has grown. Gold has done well. So it's more than offset the 5% that's allocated to these asymmetric opportunities. Now, if I had a better timing mechanism, you know, perhaps I would allocate differently. Um, but the way I've explained it is, you know, this is a 5% allocation. Uh, you got to be prepared to, to lose it. Um, it, you know, maybe it takes three months, maybe it takes three years to play out, but at some point we think that, that this is going to be a good insurance policy to have. So that's kind of how we've approached it. But maybe, maybe there's a better way to do it, but that's, that's the way we've tackled it. Awesome. That sounds great, Brent. Uh, thanks so much, man. You've been really, really generous with your time. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, uh, Santiago, kind of the work you do, what's the best way to do that? Sure. Um, you can always uh, you can send me an email. You can uh, just go to SantiagoCapital.com. It's got my my uh, contact information on there. I'm very, you know, uh, uh, very involved in Twitter, I guess, for lack of a better word. So Santiago AU Funder, you can just search for Santiago Capital and you can shoot me a DM or respond to one of my tweets. You know, I do a number of shows like with, with Blockworks and some uh, some other uh, platforms. So, you know, I, I, I actually hate saying this because it just sounds so kind of silly and ridiculous. But if you actually go on to uh, YouTube and type in dollar milkshake, which is kind of what I've titled my theory, um, there's a, you'll get a number of different, um, you know, links that you can you can watch and, and, and learn about more about uh, kind of how I think things are going to play out. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Brent. This has been a ton of fun. We'll have to do this uh, again sometime soon. Anytime. Thanks again.